Number 650, 650. Send the light and you may stand if you would like. speak to us. I command this good congregation, our elders and preachers and all of you that are working diligently in the kingdom of God to help spread the gospel not only in this community but throughout the world and I'm glad to be a co-worker with you in trying to take the gospel into places like Singapore and China and throughout much of uh, the Far East. And I know you're involved in other works, and we appreciate you for that as we work together for the greatest cause there is. For a few moments this morning, <clears throat> I would like for us to think about viewing the walls. 
If you have your Bibles, you might open them at this time to the book of Nehemiah. <clears throat> Excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll look at verses 12 through 18 together. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. I have an idea, no matter what type of work you may be in, it may be a, a business that you're running or at least working at it, and if you have anything to do with the way that business is succeeding, you know that there's a time where you take inventory, you take a look and you see, how are we been doing? Do we need to correct anything? If you're in school, you take a look at it and you begin to see, okay, do I need to uh, change anything? How, do, how am I doing in this? Well, the same is true also with the Christian life. And the text that the good brother read to us just a moment ago, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, we find that God admonishes us to examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, unless ye, uh, except Jesus Christ be in you. If Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates or cast away. So it behooves us then to examine ourselves. Today we're going to read a text where Nehemiah, who's been in captivity, but he's given permission to go back to his homeland after the captivity is over, that is to rebuild some walls, to look at the walls. And he's going to view the walls, and he's going to make a proposal, and we're going to see, I believe, some encouraging things for us. But then we want to make some applications to us as we view the walls of Zion today. And to ask ourselves, do we need to uh, make any amends to the walls? What attacks are being made on the walls of Jerusalem today? And I'm talking about spiritual Jerusalem, the Lord's church. With that in mind, look, if you will, at Nehemiah chapter 2. Starting in verse number 12, and it says, And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do unto Jerusalem, or at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley unto the dragon or jackal well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went up to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whether I went or what I did, Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then I said unto them, Ye see the distress we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God which was upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Nehemiah took inventory and inspection of the condition of his homeland, which of course was Jerusalem. As I mentioned, it's good for us to take an inventory in our lives. To see, the, see what our spiritual condition is, 2 Corinthians 13 
and verse number 5. And it's also good for us to take a look at the condition of the church. I know that alert elders are very concerned about the condition of the church. You have good elders here, and they are concerned about your spiritual welfare. A brother of mine was just reading the other day, telling me about, he said he was reading Brother J.A., uh, my brother McGarvey, uh, and J.W. McGarvey. And he said, brother, brother McGarvey's pointing out that it was the work of the elders to guard the flock, to protect the flock, to put them in good pasture land, if you will. He said, you know, sheep know how to eat. <laughs> you don't have to eat for them. And I thought, you know, that's a pretty good point. We cannot force feed children of God. We as elders can help to protect the flock. We can provide good food for the flock, but sheep ought to know how to eat. That's not something that uh, you have to do for someone else. And so it is then I thought about the application here as we look at the spiritual walls of the church today. You know, in Revelations chapter, uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, our Lord wrote seven letters to the seven churches of Asia, basically imploring them to take an inventory of themselves. They had many good qualities, but there were some things that were lacking in their lives. And he says, I commend you in that which is good, but then I condemn you in that which is not good. And consequently then, you take that inventory, you look at your life, and you say, you know what, we can do better. We can do better. As we then look at today's text, and we began to think about the walls, let's note the background of this situation in Nehemiah's day. God had brought Israel out of Egypt by the hand of Moses and Aaron, you will recall. And he said, I'm going to lead you, Moses and Aaron are going to lead you into a good land, a large land. And this land flows with milk and honey. It's going to, you're going to occupy houses that you didn't build. You're going to be reaping vineyards that you didn't plant. It's all been provided for you. Well, what a blessing. Coming out of uh, captivity, going over there. But you will recall that some of them began to doubt that they could take the land. And consequently, they had to wander in that wilderness for 40 years. But after that 40 years of wandering, we find that the second generation of Israel now that had come out of Egypt is now ready to enter into the promised land. That's where you have the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is written to that second generation. And so now then, Moses again begins to give instruction to them, and he says that God promises to be with you if you will do what I command you to do. As long as you don't turn aside, you can continue in the good land. If, however... You go after other gods. He says, I'm going to withhold the rain from you. Your crops will not grow, and ultimately you will perish off of the good land that I have given unto you. The point is this. The promised land was conditional. And so it is for us today, friends, as we are thinking about trying to enter that ultimate promised land, heaven, let us remember that that is conditional. That's why we need to take that inventory. Unfortunately, though, as they entered into that good land and they'd been there a while, now then Israel and Judah turns away from God. They turn away from God's Word. They began to serve idols. 
God says, I'm going to send them prophets. You know, God's been so long-suffering. I'm so grateful for the long-suffering of God. I'm grateful for the long-suffering of God in my own life. And no doubt you in your lives. I tell folks, every pencil I have still has an eraser. <laughs> we make mistakes and we sin. And so I'm grateful that God has been patient. And so God sent prophets. He sent Isaiah. He sent Jeremiah. He sent people like Hosea and Amos and others. Kept telling Israel and also Judah to repent. But unfortunately, they continued on in their rebellion. And consequently then, they went into captivity. And Jeremiah pointed out that you're going to be in that captivity for 70 years. You're going to be driven away from Jerusalem. Israel went into the Assyrian captivity in 721 B.C. Finally, Babylon overtakes Assyria in 612 B.C. And now then, Babylon comes against Judah. And there were three carryings away of the, Babylon the Babylonians come, that is, King Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he takes Judah. And the first time he takes about 18,000 Jews into Babylonian captivity. Well, Judah still didn't learn her lesson, so in 597 B.C., or 586 uh, B.C., and then uh, coming on down, uh, well, 606, and then 597 B.C. it was, the second carrying away took place, and he took 10,000 Jews. Still did not learn. They set up a puppet king, Zedekiah, but Zedekiah, of course, tried to go down into Egypt and make an affiliation with them. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes along and now let me tell you about how captivity was. Back in Zedekiah's day, here's what a Babylonian king did. He takes, Zedekiah, he takes Zedekiah's sons. He kills them before, that is, as his father watched it. And then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and take him into captivity. So that's pretty bad captivity, isn't it? Last thing that he was going to be able to see was his sons being put to death. The last image that would have been burned into his mind. All of this could have been avoided if they had just listened to God, but they did not. But now what happens is, is that Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem. Destroys all the walls, burns everything, just takes them all over into Babylonian captivity. So they stayed in Babylonian captivity for a period of 70 years. As you mentioned, the first carrying away was 606. So in 536 B.C., Babylon had fallen to the Medes and the Persians now. And the Medo-Persians were a little bit more benevolent. And Cyrus had come along to where, now then, he says, I'm going to allow you to go back. And so some of the Jews, starting in about 530 B.C., went back into Jerusalem. But now Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, uh, Nehemiah is still over there in captivity. He's the king's cupbearer. He hears of what's going on with his country and the devastated state that it was in. So what does he want to do? He wants to go and take a look and see what is going on. So Nehemiah gets permission from the king in about 400 or so B.C. to go back and look at Jerusalem. And what does he find? Well, he finds that the walls are torn down. The gates and everything has been burnt. This is his homeland. This is God's place of dwelling. And it ought to be rebuilt, he's thinking. So he views that. Elders today look about and we begin to see, are there any attacks on the walls of spiritual Zion? 
there any inventory that we need to, to look at today? Well, it broke Nehemiah's heart. But Nehemiah now reports his uh, findings to the people. But you know what? You know, some people just like to find fault. Now, I've edited a church bulletin before. <laughs> and uh, I still use print and I still make mistakes. In, every once in a while, you wouldn't think this. But you know what? I make a mistake. I finally put in the church bulletin one time a little caption that said, We know that there are people who look for mistakes, and we try to please everyone. So every once in a while, intentionally, we insert a few mistakes just to try to help you out. Well, obviously, we all make mistakes. But we want to correct them, don't we? We want to do better. And I'm glad that we serve a God that says... I'll give you that opportunity. And so, Nehemiah now reports to the people the findings. But you know what? Nehemiah wasn't there just to see what was wrong. I, I appreciate leaders when they look and they say, here's a problem, but now then, what's the solution? You see, not just trying to find fault, but trying to fix what it is that is wrong. So Nehemiah comes up with a proposal. Here's the way that it can be repaired. And then the people join in with that, and they began to say, yes, we can do that, and let's do it. My friends, might I suggest to you and me that when we have leadership that's wanting to do what is right, and we have membership that's wanting to do what is right, we know we serve a God who wants us to do what is right, there's great things that can be accomplished in the cause of Jesus Christ. If we will overcome complacency, mediocrity, and get back to wanting to do what God would have us to do and to follow that grand book, the Bible, today. So let's view the walls of Jerusalem today. Let's, we're not talking about the city of Jerusalem today. While that'd be an interesting city to go to and, and to see from a historical standpoint, but I'm more interested in the spiritual Jerusalem, the church of our Lord. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 25, you'll remember in Paul's uh, allegory, he mentioned about the Jerusalem that now is. And he's talking about the church. The church of Christ was prophesied. It was established by Jesus Christ on the first Pentecost following Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. He had promised, I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18. Might I suggest to you and me then, we can find that church today if we'll open up the pages of God's Word, find its identifying marks, and you and I can be members of that church. Acts chapter 2, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. However, the same Bible that tells us that God was going to establish His church tells us that there was going to be a falling away. Paul knew that was coming. God knew that it was coming. You know, Satan doesn't take God by surprise. And so in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, notice what Paul says. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, having their conscience seared with hot irons, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So he says, Timothy... There's going to be a falling away. 
Not only did he tell the preacher Timothy that, he told the Ephesian elders that. If you'll notice in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, he calls for the Ephesian elders to meet him on this island, of, or at Miletus rather. And he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, what's, what's going to happen, Paul, when you leave? After my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also men from among your own selves shall arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember by the space of three years, I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. He says there's going to be a falling away, elders. Some of it's going to come through you. It did happen just that way, didn't it? You may recall, if you've studied church history, how that sometimes they began to exalt one elder above another elder, and they reserved for him the title of bishop. Well, you have a bishop over the bishops eventually, <laughs> and so you come up with an archbishop. Then you start a struggle, who's going to be the universal bishop? And there was a struggle between Constantinople and also between Egypt. And then also Rome. Well, Rome finally won out in 606 uh, A.D. Boniface III declared that he was the universal bishop of the church. Catholicism, in other words. Universalism is what, it's what Catholic means, universal. And so, therefore, he became the head of the church on earth, he thought. Well, that was 606. So there's the falling away, and you have Catholicism. Later on, you're going to have then breaking away of Catholicism, and you have what was, became known starting in the 1500s as denominationalism. And so therefore, Martin Luther and others who were uh, trying to reform the Catholic Church, but it resulted in denominations springing up, and so you have denominationalism. And so you had that falling away. But also, that falling away, as I said, did occur, but also there was then what became known as the Reformation Movement, which I just mentioned starting in about 1500s, Martin Luther and others. Great ideas that they had. And in fact, they were trying to get the Bible out into the uh, common people. If Brethren, you and I need to appreciate the, the sacrifice that some of these people made so that you and I today have copies of the Bible. Martin Luther's crying, trying to get the Bible into the German language. Uh, other men so disdained by the Catholic Church that they dug up the bones of one of them, <laughs> burned them, Tyndale's, and threw his uh, ashes over the river. What was his crime? Translating the Bible in the vernacular of the people so that today you and I can have the Bible because they didn't want you to have the Bible. They were the guardians of the Bible and we'll tell you what the Bible says, basically. That was a Reformation movement, though, that took place. But then there were others that came along and said, you know what, we need to go back to the original." We need to go back to the Bible. Whatever they were in Bible times, that's what we will be. We'll give up denominationalism. We will give up Catholicism. And we will go back to the church that we read about in the Bible. And that became then known as the Restoration Movement in our country. Didn't start necessarily only in our country, but in others as well. And so therefore they got to going back to the Bible. And that's a biblical principle. 
Anytime we depart from God, what we do is we get back to the original. We get back to the Word of God. And so that's what, as we think about it, when we're studying this about Nehemiah, today as we're viewing the wall, though, what do we see? What is happening today? There are people who are attacking the walls of the church today. Nothing new necessarily, but here's the mentality. There are some who will build up a straw man about the church and say the church is dead. Uh, somebody will say, we need to quit trying to restore the church of the 1950s. Brethren, I don't know anybody that's trying to restore the church of the 1950s, per se. I think that's a straw man. Now, obviously, we don't live in the 1950s. I understand that. We have technology today that we didn't have in the 50s, or some of you didn't have. I was born in the 50s, but I wasn't, uh, I discovered America in the 50s, but I wasn't a member of the church in the 50s. So I'm certainly not trying to restore that, but you know what? We have technology today, and I, I rejoice in that. I can talk with China uh, cross country immediately today. That, that's a wonderful blessing, and these things are great. So we're not trying to go back in methodology, if you will, to that, uh, but there's a straw man that some people build up and say that the church needs to change. We need to make the church, they're saying, relevant. And they're changing the doctrine of God in order to make the church fit the world today so it'd be like the denominations round about us. There's the problem. So they're attacking the walls. Some are advocating change in worship that we need to then make the worship more relevant today. John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Some are advocating then that, we, that the, what the Bible teaches about the role of women in the church is, is, out of, uh, is out of style and need to make it relevant, and so therefore some have done that. Some of our Christian colleges are promoting that. Some of the founders I might advocate to you, or might tell you, uh, the founders of those colleges, if they knew what was going over, certainly would roll over in their graves if, that, if they thought what was going on, because they never intended for that to happen. But yet some of those colleges are doing that. I've been in some places, and overseas, by the way. This goes, what happens here, you know that, that commercial, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? That's not true. <laughs> what happens in America doesn't stay in America either. I remember on one occasion being in China, and I believe I was some among some of the most liberal brethren. They were so liberal, I don't think they knew they were liberal. I don't even know if they knew what liberalism was. I think they'd moved on into modernism. But they're trying to do mission work among the Chinese, and that's, but promoted by some of our schools at times. And so we need to take a look at that. There are some who say we need praise teams. I remember some time ago that we received over here at the Memphis School of Preaching an invitation for a church down here in Mississippi. It said, we're looking for a preacher, and we would you come and fill in for us, send students down and fill in for us until we find a, uh, a preacher. Well, one of our secretaries spoke up and said, oh, yes, we'd do that. He said, well, I need to tell you something, what we do. And he began to tell us about their praise teams and things of that nature. And so she said, well, then you need to talk to an instructor. <laughs> 
And so I became that instructor. They sent me a, 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 that same question, and they said, oh, by the way, here's what we do. Now notice, they pointed out to me some of the things they were doing. Now why did they feel compelled? Did you, brethren, when you invited me to come speak today, say, but let me tell you, we do something a little differently here, Brother Bland. He, they knew it was different, didn't they? So they knew that there's an innovation that we might not agree with, but we want to tell you up front. Well, I appreciated that, that they would tell me they were doing that. So I wrote them a letter, and I said, Brethren, we won't send a student, but I will come. But just as you told me what you do, I'm going to, with your invitation, and out of love, I will show you from God's Word why what you're doing is wrong. And I'll do it in love. I'm not coming down there to, to stir up any problem. But you've told me what you're doing. I know that's not authorized from God's Word. And I know you don't want to be corrupting the worship service. Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. We find what God thinks about people who uh, changed the worship service. He destroyed uh, Nadab and Abihu for offering that which was unauthorized. And I said, so I know you'll want to do what is right. At least I'm hoping that but I will come. They wrote me a letter and said, thanks, but no thanks. Don't need you here. Don't need you. So uh, I didn't go, and I guess they're still doing that. Then also there's the idea that some have to say, you know, to make church more relevant, what we need to do is start raising our hands and throwing our hands back and forth under an old Pentecostal type thing or maybe community church atmosphere as such, and that's going to make it more spiritual. Friends, where's the authority for that? I know that 1 Timothy 2.8 says lifting up holy hands without doubting, but that has to do with prayer, not singing. And I know that he's not really talking about literally lifting up your hands. He's talking about a holy lifestyle. And if you're going to lift up your hands to pray to God, he says, be holy. By the way, just the men were to do that in that context. And so it's an abuse of that, but what they're trying to do is say, let's make it more relevant. Then they tell us the church was dead in the 50s and the church was dead before they started doing all these things. But then they turn around and say, but you don't have to do these things to be scriptural. Well, then my argument here would be then, well, then the church is not dead. Why do you say on one hand the church is dead because you're not doing these things, but you don't have to do it to be scriptural? Well, then the church is not dead. We're scriptural without doing it. These are innovation and these are, uh, are ploys that they come up with in order to change the church to be what they would have it to be. Friends, the truth is there is no authority for those things that our people are trying to do in the church today. Colossians 3.17 Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. You see, my worship today, your worship today, we're not here to entertain one another. I am not here to entertain you. You're not here to entertain me. When Brother Sasser leads us in song, he's not trying to entertain you. What the only person in the audience today is God. Everyone here, if you're worshiping scripturally, is a participant, not a spectator. None of us is a spectator in our worship to God. We just assemble together then to have that corporate worship to God. We're not here to applaud one another. We're not here to say, hey, I like that. 
We are here to worship God and to preach God's word and honor him the way he has said to be honored. So as we view the walls, let us remember the very intent that we're coming together. There's another area of concern that I see today, and that area of concern is apathy. People just don't care. Another area along that same line is one reason why they don't care is we live in a sports-crazed society, don't we? I mean, we've got our children and our grandchildren on every ball team that we can get them on and don't allow church to interfere with my ball playing and things. That's the most important thing, as it were, as it turns out. And some of them are hoping for careers because I guess we see what some of the uh, players are making in the multi-millions as such. And that's become almost an idol to us today that we don't care about things that are spiritual. Recreation comes first. I remember Revelation chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul, or rather where Jesus is writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Don't leave our first love. Let's come back, you see, to God. Let's put God first. Recreation what happened years ago. People could still involve themselves in recreation, but it wasn't their way of life. That wasn't their life. But serving God. Well, Nehemiah's proposal, as we began to look at this, he shows the condition. Then he came back with a proposal. He said, you see the distress we're in. Let us rise up and build. Aren't we glad that we've got leaders today that sometimes will speak up and say, hey, we need to take a look at it. But you know what? We can fix it. And, and so we can come back. We need to see the same opportunities for us. Even though, and, and you know, the Lord made the church autonomous. Because another congregation around us goes astray, that doesn't mean we have to go. There's the, 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 uh, the blessing of autonomy. We can remain true to God's book. We can remain true to God even though nobody else is. We need to see then also the opportunities for evangelism. As I've said a long time ago, being sound in the faith doesn't mean being sound asleep. <laughs> it means activity. Uh, and that is trying to get God's gospel out. There was opposition, and today we have opposition. I believe that society per se wants to intimidate Christians today. If you speak out against sin, what happens? Intimidation. Discrimination has become a tool in the hand of Satan. All that you have to do to get things legalized that are immoral today is say somebody's being discriminated against. And so we don't want to speak out against it. I remember John D. Barry... <laughs> Preaching down here at Coleman Avenue, but he's also a state representative. He was preaching at Coldwater some time ago. And he said, I'm here now, and you know Brother John D. Barry. Brother John D. Barry said, it was in my office in uh, Nashville, and he said, it walked into my office. That's the way he put it, it walked into my office. You'll understand in just a moment. He said, let me tell you what it was wearing. He said, it was wearing, I think it had long hair, had on a dress, a skirt, and had on uh, maybe like these go-go boot type things. 
and it then also had a handlebar mustache. And it said to me, it walked into my office and said, you're homophobic. You're homophobic. Can you imagine that? Somebody walking in your office, first of all, looking like that, and then looking at you and say, you're homophobic. Because he's against homosexuality. He looked at it <laughs> and said, you're heterophobic. Can you imagine that? <laughs> this person looked at him and said, what do you mean I'm heterophobic? He said, because you obviously don't like women and you're afraid to be a man. <laughs> he said, it just gave me a huh and swished right out of my office. <laughs> I'm thankful for people like Brother John D. Barry, who's not intimidated by those who would like to say, you agree with this lifestyle, don't say anything against it from God's Word, otherwise you're some kind of a phobic. Well, I think some are afraid of God's Word. But friends, I'm so grateful for men like Nehemiah. Notice, if you will, in Nehemiah 2, in verse 18, when Nehemiah says, you see the distress we're in? Their response was, let us, the congregation, if you will, is saying to the leadership now, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. When you've got leaders who are trying to lead you in the right way, friends, go to them and say, let us rise up and build. Let's do this. Let's work together. Because we're in this together. The people worked together for this good work, Nehemiah 4, 16. They built with instruments, if you will, of tools in one hand and swords in the other because they were defending while they were building. So we can't allow attacks to keep us from doing what we ought to be doing today. Friends, they sought the Lord's blessings, and He blessed them. Today, if we seek the Lord's blessings, we see what's going on around about us, and rather than mimicking the world, let's go back. Let's take inventory of our lives and let us see what God would have us to be. You remember Romans 15 in verse number 4, whatsoever things written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and the comforts of the Scriptures might have hope. The walls of Jerusalem had been torn down, but by God's grace they were rebuilt. The walls of spiritual Jerusalem are under attack, but by God's good grace, the walls will stand. And if any walls have been knocked down, we can rebuild them by going back to God's Word. The church has been attacked in the past. The church in the first century was attacked, but you know what, good brethren? It's still here today. Hebrews 12, 28 says it cannot be moved. It's going to be here long after you and I are gone. It's the kingdom that shall never pass away, according to Daniel 2 and verse 44. So we need to view the walls, rebuild where it is then necessary. But as we think about this on an individual lesson or application, there may be some walls in my life that I need to look at. Not only the walls of the church as a whole, but also individually. Have I allowed some attacks to come up, you see, against the spiritual wall that God has given to me? Have I wandered away from God? If you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ, why not do what Jesus said to do? He said, except you believe I'm He, you shall die in your sins. So I believe in Jesus Christ. Am I willing to repent of my sins? Luke 13, 3. Then I confess that Jesus is the Christ, Romans 10, 10. 
And then I'm immersed in water for the remission of my sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. The Lord add me to his church, Acts 2, 47. If I've done that, but I've wandered away from God and I want to come back. I don't want to be apathetic anymore. I want to be involved in the work of the Lord and I want to live right and I want to be what God would have me to be. Well, then I can come back to God. He allows us that opportunity to rebuild that wall in our lives. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're subject to the Lord's invitation, once you come, as together we stand and we sing this song.